Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for March 16th, 2020. We're coming to you from the coronavirus quarantine holdout. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we looking to do here? Well, Joe, in these trying times, we're trying to offer our customary weekly dose of adequately informed discussion considering ideas from any and all corners of the world always making sure that it's in good faith and always being adequately informed if not always being in good faith what we'll at least try to be in good faith we'll try trying that's what we're oh, we try we're trying we're trying to we're, we're good trying tryers. to be smart people with deep conversations, whereas it could be quite pedestrian. But anyway, we are only human. We don't know everything. We are not infallible. We are not on the ivory tower. So we uh, we believe other perspectives have value in them. And I guess we'll go into it, eh, Evan? Hey, Joe. What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about third parties because I think that there is, and I don't think this is necessarily exclusive to this time in my life, but it feels like as long as I've been able to process what's going on, it seems like people have been really upset with both Democratic and Republican institutions. And so it, it kind of leaves me to wonder, what about third parties? And so I wanted to take a look back at the past of what some third party notables have done and look to the future and see what realistically makes sense in the future of third parties for those who are fed up with the establishments. So I'm just going to go back through modern political history. I didn't try to do any big dustbin dives and find the guy who was, you know... What, you're not going to talk about the, the Whig party? <laughs> well, see, it was different. It was just an entirely different landscape. While political parties were being formed, remember, George Washington didn't believe in political parties and didn't have one. And so then, yeah, the, the Whig party, the Democratic Republicans, and various others all had enough power for a while to get presidents in. But eventually it collapsed down to the modern Democrats and modern Republicans. But what's even and funny about like the Washington dislike of parties was that it was almost a almost entirely a call out of Thomas Jefferson's anti-federalists as a <laughs> quote party. It's like, oh, all of us federalists. No, we're not party people. They're identity politics. They're doing identity politics, being anti-federalist. They're being parties. We're not being parties. They opposed us. They're a group, but we're not a group. But they do oppose us. Whoever us is. Yeah. <laughs> there is no us, but they oppose it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the first time that I want to look to is a guy named John Anderson, who ran as an independent in the 1980 presidential election. And Anderson was a Republican but he was a more moderate Republican, a centrist Republican back, uh, you know, obviously in 1980, running directly against Ronald Reagan, who would push that party into much more conservative depths. And Anderson did OK. He was able to attract a lot of 
moderate voters on both sides and ended up with 6.6% of the national vote, which is fine. I mean, good for him. He probably, in this case, didn't have too much sway in the electorate because he was so moderate, so it's likely that he took more or less equal support away from Carter and Reagan, but nonetheless, he was able to gain a little bit of traction. Over 1 in 20 votes cast were for John Anderson. So then we get to the big daddy of independent presidential candidates, and that's Ross Perot. He was an independent and eventually joined the Reform Party, and he had a much bigger electoral impact. In 1992, when he ran, he gained almost 20 million votes and captured 19% of the national vote. But because these votes were all spread out, he didn't get any electoral delegates, which might make you stop and think about a system where someone can get a fifth of the vote and end up with no representation in the Electoral College. But Ross Perot likely did have an impact on the election, tipping it away from George Bush, the first, George H.W. Bush, who was the incumbent president, likely siphoning off many more Bush voters than Clinton voters, allowing Clinton to capture the presidency. Actually, this is the last time that a sitting president has lost re-election when he was eligible, and a lot of that is due to Ross Perot's successfully insurgent candidacy, and (laughs) to me that really speaks to the nature of how difficult it is to defeat an incumbent. It takes sort of a a once-in-a-lifetime political miracle and a very strong third-party candidate of a similar ideology to even give an an opposing candidate a fighting chance against an incumbent. Or you could even just be a single Jimmy Carter. Yeah. <laughs> but remember, remember too, that um, Jimmy Carter also had to contend with John Anderson. And um, so even then, he couldn't, he, he was still fighting more than one opponent who was able to gain some electoral viability. Again, Anderson was more centrist, and so his effect was probably smaller. But it does kind of make you think that the guys who are losing aren't losing two man races. I mean, but. But Reagan swept. He absolutely oh, yeah. swept when he came in. It, it, maybe maybe he would have swept slightly less if uh, John Anderson hadn't been in the race. But that, again, with all these, it's a who knows. <laughs> yeah, there's no real counterfactual to look to because history only happens the one time. So anyway, the next big time third party candidate was Ralph Nader, who was a Green Party candidate in the year 2000, and he was hugely influential. He probably flipped Florida, hanging chads aside, he got more votes in Florida than the margin of difference between George W. Bush and Al Gore. So it's likely that had Nader not been in the race... Gore wins Florida outright, and history is completely shifted. Nader being a consumer advocate and more progressive guy, he may have actually 
injured his own best interests by allowing a conservative George Bush to defeat Al Gore, a more moderate guy who was at least uh, more or less on his team. And that's, I know, something that, that Joe and I have talked about before is how running a third party presidential candidacy ultimately just kind of hurts people on your own side. The people who are the, the standard bearer for your half of the political spectrum just gets votes siphoned off from their cause and ultimately ends up losing to someone who is ideologically farther away from the policy goals that you want to achieve. In 2016, I don't think this really made a big difference. Gary Johnson ran as a libertarian. Jill Stein ran for the Green Party, but, uh, you know, they didn't really yeah. didn't really do much. It was interesting that um, Evan Evan Mullen, Mick Mullen, what, yeah. do you remember that guy's name? Oh, Ed, I, follow him on, I follow him on Twitter, yeah. But what was his last name? Is it Mullen or Mick Mullen? Uh, Mick Mullen, yeah. Mick, yeah, so he actually placed second in Utah behind Trump. He, you know, he couldn't, he, he wasn't even on all the ballots everywhere and he didn't have any sort of national support, but more people in Utah voted for McMullen than they did for Hillary Clinton, which is kind of quirky. Yeah. It, so, that was uh, yeah. Mormons holding out their feelings that they could be decent in the face of Trump was voting for their local boy and i mean mcmullen's a solid character he's uh pretty he's still uh pretty anti-trump i mean would i agree with him on everything no but he at least seems like a man of decent character and then somebody could probably take me a link of some time he did one thing horrible and i don't know but i don't know about that one thing so <laughs> anyway he he was a protest vote if anything yeah, I don't know anything about him, so that's that's interesting context. Um, but there are circumstances where third parties can be very successful. It just doesn't happen on the national scale. I especially look to Vermont, where we know that Bernie Sanders is a U.S. senator from Vermont, and he is he is a registered independent. And I was actually looking through the register of different elected officials in Vermont. And what you find is that they have in their state legislature a huge amount of independents and third-party candidates. The big third party in Vermont is called the Vermont Progressive Party, and I think that the name is pretty self-explanatory. Obviously, Vermont is a state with a small population, but that's where third parties can gain the most foothold is in small sample sizes where they don't need to win a huge raw number of votes to be elected. And so I think that's an important lesson for people who are considering what it would mean to try to build up an actual third party. It's not going to happen by voting for Jill Stein or Gary Johnson in the general. That is just taking your ballot and at least for the presidential race, dropping it right in the trash can. It means nothing. If you are really interested in trying to get a greater diversity of ideas out there, look to local chapters of third parties. See if those parties can organize to get people into city council seats, onto school boards, and start to grow from the ground up because that is the only way 
that third party candidates can gain some sort of power and not hurt ideologically aligned candidates on the national scale. Well, and I think it goes to something that I've seemed to have learned. I, I feel like I learned some of this in college, but when you have a social movement or have something that's against the status quo, it's a lot easier to do in areas where there's kind of low information or low need for greater, you know, at least in this part, party structures. So if you have a large population or, you know, have a uh, an election across a large population, then parties serve a role of kind of making things simpler. You know, if you, if something is Republican that, you know, whatever beliefs are attached to that, if someone's Democrat, they are, their beliefs are attached to that. But if you have a smaller scale issue where people uh, or there is not as much broad informational structure needed, then you can win people over to be part of something that isn't the mainstream. And I feel like I was trying to make two arguments there and kind of half made both of them. But um, <laughs> so it, it does make sense that somewhere like Vermont and, and just the culture of those smaller New England states where they take great pride in their democracy. Like, I'm pretty sure Vermont has, it's either Vermont or New Hampshire, has something like 700 members of their state house or something like that. Like, they take their democracy very seriously and have a very rich civil culture. Now, you go elsewhere in the country... That just isn't the case, but it doesn't mean it has to remain the case. Yeah, people need to be committed to building a partisan identity that has legs. If you really want to see a green party come about, the way this is why I think that you know people like Jill Stein are so disingenuous. You know what? What are they doing? If they were actually interested in going the green, going uh, growing the Green Party, they would go and try to be a mayor or something. Presidential grandstanding, we've it's been proven, does not lead to sustainable democratic organizing. And so, if you start small, there it's still unlikely. The two party system is still really entrenched. But there's really only one option, and it hasn't been too fully tried by many organizations. Yeah, it seems like, at least in the United States, when third parties come about, or a third party candidate, it's not so much party, but the candidate. It's more of a personality driven thing or someone who's charismatic enough to get some support around them. Like I couldn't tell you what a single tenant of the green party is, but I could probably, Environmentalism. I could probably tell you a good amount of what it seemed like Jill Stein was talking about or, uh, you know, Gary Johnson. I mean, there is the libertarian party, but Again, it just seems like he was the one who was able to have at least enough of a platform and enough national recognition that he could run and not so much 
his pure ideology. I mean, maybe the people who follow these, the, you know, vote for these are more ideological than your average voter, but it just seems like the people, when they come up to become third party candidates, it seems very individual oriented. That's a really interesting observation. Um, And I think it again speaks to the nature of how polarized we are and how entrenched we are that even though people say they don't like either party, there there's not a desire to create a sustainable third party. It's more about these cults of personalities that crop up from time to time. I think there's something to that. That's interesting. And, and just as a kind of pure political science reasoning of why these third parties don't take hold is because if you have first past the post voting system, which is the standard United States voting system where you go in, you have a slate of candidates, you vote for one and whoever has the most votes win under that system, it will almost inevitably collapse down to a two party system because if you have, I mean, let's say you had four candidates, you know, there would be, um, there would probably be two candidates who are probably close in or two parties that are close in their vision. So they'd probably be like, Hey, we're tired of losing. What if we come together and join in to defeat the other two? I'm like, all right. And well now there's three candidates or three parties. Then the other two parties are like, Hey, wait a minute. Those other two parties came together and now we'll never win because they'll always get most of the vote because we're split between two separate electorates. So then those two parties come together and then they're then it just kind of naturally comes out to being two parties because yeah, but it's, it's, it's hard to do any it just as a pure math reasoning. It's hard to make ground in any other way. And it's important to remember that this is sort of a problem with first-past-the-post voting. There are other democratic systems that award representation proportionally. So what would happen there is, let's say Ross Perot runs and his party is able to get that 19% support. Well, then 19% of the legislature will now be the reform party or whatever it may be. And... That's why other countries are able to have a greater number of viable political parties. But as Joe said, that's not what we've got here. Yeah, what we end up getting is two parties who are a little bit more broader in what they, in the type of people who are in them. Like we said last episode, uh, how. Alexandria AOC believes that, you know, if they were in another country, her and Joe Biden wouldn't be in the same party because in most other countries, they wouldn't be. They, they would be in separate separate parties. But because there's only two, then you get a party that's kind of mostly catering to uh, beliefs that are more on the left, more state solutions. And then you get more or liberal uh liberal ideas and then you get the more broadly right party who believes more in conservatism um and that's just kind of how it is currently yeah 
Um, you could argue about which, you know, parties going to the further to whatever polls or whatever, but that's just kind of generally how the two parties are a home to generally liberal progressive ideas or not. And then a home to generally conservative ideas or not, but they're not steadfastly ideological. But they are a little bit more now, but not nearly as much as other countries are. Mm-hmm. And it's tough because if you only have two parties, that uh, it's hard to express that vote. Especially if you believe yeah. something that most of the people in that party don't share your opinion with. So that's why people gravitate towards these third parties in order to try and express an opinion that they believe is missing from the greater electorate. So, yeah. So for the love of God, don't vote third party in 2020. Don't do it. If you truly in your heart of hearts are fed up with the two party system, organize locally, organize locally and try and organize for electoral reform that include multi-party or multi-member districts or ranked voting or something. Ranked voting. Yep. Because Because actually let's, let's pull that apart just really quickly. Cause the other problem is that if in, in our system where you only pick one candidate, then you're kind of are restricted in your votes to the top two candidates because they're the only ones who win. If we had ranked voting and you were really like, Hey, you know, I do like Gary Johnson the most. You can put Johnson number one and then Trump, Clinton, whoever at number two. And then if Gary Johnson really doesn't have the broad support, you know, he'll get stricken and then your vote will count for whoever you like the second most. But if it turns out that there are a lot of people who have Johnson ranked number one, now they're not afraid to do so and risk having that loss to the opposite side. Yeah. Or it would, um, if you have multi-member districts, so in uh, the United States, each district is normally just, you have one representative. Well, what if you have a district where there's, I don't know, 10 representatives? Then the amount of vote necessary to get even just one representative becomes much lower than what it would take to uh, win over one delegate in somewhere else. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. because the United States system gives essentially power to land, your support for someone has to be concentrated in a certain area or geographic region for it to mean anything. So, like, let's say in a state, there's a whole bunch of dispersed people of or uh, like, you know, Evan was saying, if somebody has like 10 percent support but it's diffuse over the whole state and in each representative election, they only ever get 10% of the vote. That just means they get 0% of the representation, which you could take this even further, you know, even in a two party system where two parties are both uh, competitive. If in every district in a state or in the nation, one party got, 50.1% of the vote in every single district, then 
they would win. They get a hundred percent of the power. Yeah, when really the public opinion is about split, and that doesn't make much sense at all. And that's why you see more and more these instances due to gerrymandering and other uh, population distribution factors. You know, the trend is that Democrats win more votes state in statewide elections for like state legislatures and stuff by a wide margin but because of these geographic reasons they end up with fewer representatives in state legislatures yep their their share of the vote is more concentrated where it's at than diffuse which if you have a system that gives votes to land you need that kind of I mean, in order, you know, in the third party context, you need a concentrated amount of uh, support. But if you're just doing the two parties, then the two parties need to your party needs to have enough diffuse support across a wide range of areas in order to really gain power. I mean, that's essentially what happened in the 2016 election. Hillary Clinton got three million more votes than Trump, but it was in places where she already won. She was going to win. I mean, the fact that, um, you know, California had so many votes for her that, you know, really ran up the tally, you know, hell, she could have gotten two million more in California than she already did. And it wouldn't have changed anything. So that's uh, voting is a fickle thing. There is no perfect system, but we could definitely have a more perfect system. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Joe. Evan. What do you want to talk about? Well, inspired by events that have been transpiring, I wanted to give a brief look at recessions because there is a good chance that a recession could be coming on here soon. And I thought I would go over kind of what causes a a recession. So... Under a technical definition, a recession is two consecutive quarters of uh, declining GDP, negative growth in economic output, two consecutive quarters. Now, there are kind of two ways that recessions can come about. There's one version that has been you know, in modern political history, a little bit more uh, prevalent, which is where uh, there is a whole scale re-evaluation of economic activity as it stands. So this is what happened in the Great Recession, and this is what happened in the dot-com recession, was... There was all this economic growth and all these financial markers that were based on some ideas of certain economic performance. So the dot-com boom was based on this idea that anything that had dot-com on it was very valuable, no matter if they were running a loss you know, quarter after quarter. Or in the uh, in the Great Recession, where there was a belief that these mortgage-backed securities were good and stable and had a low default rate, 
when in fact they had a high default rate and were much riskier. So the entire financial system had to readjust itself to the fact that these mortgage-backed securities were not worth what they were worth. And so that's a reevaluation of certain economic underlying economic circumstances that can lead to a recession where it wasn't so much that the amount of activity actually changed. It was just how the markets evaluated that activity and what its worth was. The second type of recession that can be caused is from an external shock, which for uh, what may be coming up due to the coronavirus may be what's happening here. So a financial uh, realignment can also cause a shock. Um, but so this is something a, a recession, you know, it doesn't happen quite on a national scale all the time, but recessions can happen within industries. They can happen within, uh, you know, states or localities. So an external shock is something that comes from outside the economic system to change how, um, how much economic activity can take place. So, um, one, one area that I've, I'm some, I'm in the transportation industry and over the last year or so, the entire, transportation industry was in a bit of a recession with uh, negative growth happening. This was caused largely in part by the tariffs and trade restrictions that Trump had mandated. This was an external shock. Nothing changed about the amount of trucks, the amount of uh, freight, the amount of, or I mean, the amount of demand for freight. But what changed was the amount that was being let in and that what needed to be moved. So that was an external shock to the system. What we're looking at now with the coronavirus is an external shock. So the way this would happen is that, well, we're, we, we have this quality where we're talking now, but in two days, this is going to be, you know, seem old hat. But so currently a whole lot of businesses have been slowing down. There's a, uh, J.B. Pritzker, I mean, this may be uh, a little bit before what we're going to talk about later, but you know, just before we started recording, J.B. Pritzker announced that all bars and restaurants are going to be closing in the state of Illinois from, uh, what is it, from Monday to until at least March 30th. So what happens there, this is, this is how recessions happen, is that we don't, people don't go to the restaurants. So people who work at restaurants don't get money. Then the people at the re who don't get the money for working at the restaurants, they aren't able to go and buy things. Then they're not able to go and buy their you know essentials, like they're not able to go to Walmart. So Walmart has to go and purchase less stuff. Then the people who work at the place that manufactures the stuff that the people buy at Walmart has fewer demands, so they have to lay off employees because they can no longer... They no longer have enough being bought to justify the amount of employees that they have. So then the the uh, where the manufacturer lays off people, and then those people stop being able to buy things, and it's just going through and through. Where 
it's people de- having a decline in the amount of economic activity that they are able to do because of something other than their ability to do it. So it was already, it, you know, in the beginning when they were just canceling events, like stopping the NBA, that's going to be taking a whole lot of money out of people's pockets because no, you know, if nobody's going to these games, nobody's going to, you know, the hotels, just ripple effects. I mean, with the NBA, you know, forget the regular employees. So if somebody wants to go see the Bulls and come in from out of town, you know, they would stay at a hotel and, you know, eat at restaurants. Well, now nobody, that person isn't going, eating at that hotel or, uh, or staying at that hotel or eating at those restaurants. And that money is being taken away. The greatest way that I think about this is from Paul Krugman. And it's just so simple. And I don't know why it took, you know, even after getting a degree in economics to realize that every sale is a purchase. And which means that every time someone sells something, there has to be someone there purchasing it. And if nobody is able to purchase anything, then there won't be any sales. And if there aren't any sales, nobody will be able to purchase things. So it's very, it's, it's a system that feeds into itself. It's very complicated. That's why macroeconomics is a very tough discipline, but that's the general idea of how recessions come about. Yeah, it's uh, it's a shock to the demand side. If people want to self-isolate or as it's looking more and more likely, they're being forced to isolate with the closure of events and in some locations, entire industries like bars and restaurants, then there's just not anyone trying to buy these products. You know, the film industry was rocked by this this weekend where Pixar's new release Onward opened with about 40 million dollars in box office receipts last weekend which was considered good appropriate for what they were expecting but with so many people self-isolating and not want to leave their homes that means the number of people who are going to see the movies has dropped off dramatically and Onward actually experienced Pixar's worst second weekend drop in the 25-year company history, falling to just about $10 million, losing three-quarters of its hold. And so that's why when ideas are being kicked around, and and like Joe said, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but it it makes sense to address this demand-side problem when we look to interventions. But, you know, even with, um, you know, interventions trying to solve the demand side, what ends up happening is that when there is low consumer or low confidence in the economic system, then people are more likely to save their money than to spend it on things, even if they're expected to. So there's like a... I remember in the West Wing, there was an episode where they were trying to do a little uh, economic stimulus by giving people a bigger refund check. And they were hoping that it would create a little bit of economic activity, whereas people, when they're 
given a little bit of extra money instead of going and spending it on things, you know, pay off a little credit card debt or save it. So when there is that's the financial paradox, isn't it? You know, we know that for ourselves, it's a good idea to save money and pay off our debts. But those things don't stimulate the economy. Right. There's still part like doing paying off debts and savings are part of kind of bedrock economic, uh, you know, part of the model. It's always going on in the background, but but it's not truly economic activity when you're just paying back a loan. But when you're spending stuff, that is economic activity and that's directly circulating uh, money. So when you're paying back your student loan, you're not generating a whole lot of activity. But when you take out your student loan and spend it at the university, then that is economic activity. Um, so everybody needs to go take out more loans. And um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, help us out here. Apply for loans. Yeah. Give us your loans. Take out loans in your name and give them to us. Right. Announcing our new Patreon. It's called Giving Us Your Loans. So, main topic today, yep. Evan. I think uh, I think it's on everybody's mind. It's the coronavirus. Yeah, uh, it's so much on everyone's mind that Joe and I this week never had the conversation of, "Hey, so what are we going to talk about today?" We both just showed up here at our recording time and knew that this was it. Yeah. And I did not do any research, but boy, it just, uh, it's a lot going on, man. I think we're all learning a lot through osmosis just from uh, everything. (laughs) Everything is spitting coronavirus information at us. Yeah. So coronavirus, what we know about it. It's a disease that can be worse than the flu, and it mostly affects, what is it, the very young and the very old? Not the the very young. The the very very young children who have coronavirus often exhibit few or no symptoms. The only people who are really at risk are the very old and people who already have weakened immune systems due to underlying conditions. But yeah, thankfully, kids are okay in coronavirus, it seems. Yeah. Obviously, there are exceptions, but, you know, don't go infecting your kids or anything. But they are not taking the brunt of this. Yeah. So, uh, what is it? It's mostly the biggest issue that it causes in people is respiratory issues. Isn't that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Makes it very difficult to breathe. And man, I, I felt somehow... Netflix is very great at their just kind of world timing of things where like a week or two ago, they released released a mini series called pandemic <laughs> like that had to be. What did they know? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just wondering if they just had that in the wings waiting for at some point when it looked like pandemic may happen. <laughs> like, yeah. That'd be pretty spooky. 
Well, there are antecedents to this. I mean, we've been warned about our failing abilities to respond to viral pandemics since 2014. I know Trump bears a lot of responsibility for shutting down certain agencies, but we were never really well equipped to deal with this, even before Trump. And the the specific coronavirus... So I, let me just say a little bit about what I know about coronavirus. Coronavirus is actually a class of viruses that comes up every year like a strain of flu or uh, other types of illnesses. But this specific strain of coronavirus is called COVID-19. So when you hear coronavirus, that's the blanket term. COVID-19 is this specific strain, which has a, it's more problematic than previous strains of coronavirus. Yeah, it was like it's also, uh, yeah. swine flu and H1N1 were the same thing. Yes, exactly. Um, and so this is called a novel coronavirus. You'll hear that talked about sometimes. Novel just means new or unique. And so that's what they're talking about is this strain, COVID-19, is a novel coronavirus because it's new and we don't have people haven't been exposed to it. No one has an immunity to it as of yet. So essentially this uh, strain of coronavirus came from China most likely and is now going, it's spreading across the world. Uh, kind of like that pandemic game that uh, you may have played online. Yeah. Plague I, Inc. Oh, my, the one that I know is just called Pandemic 2, wow. but there, I'm sure there's a lot of games with a similar concept. It's pretty easy to, <laughs> to do. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's essentially what I know about the specific distinction between coronavirus, COVID-19, novel coronavirus. Yeah. So it has been, it, it started in China, and from the looks of it, it seems like... Um, at least from what I've been hearing, is that it's on the decline in the Wuhan region in China currently, which was the hotbed of it. But they took massive, drastic measures that are almost only uh, able to happen in authoritarian countries to in order to put a stop to it. Um. You know, there was the whole story where they built a hospital in a few days or, uh, you know, put everyone under extreme quarantine where nobody was evil, even able to leave the house. So <laughs> those are some pretty drastic measures that are hard to see able to happen in the United States or most democracies. But they have they they had an extreme response to it. And with the serious of seriousness of it, with diseases, especially this one, it's it's spread through contact, right? So it's it's also airborne as well. Yeah. So the biggest issue is being around someone who has it, or it has the germs on them that cause it. And this is why quarantining is big. This is why everybody's telling you to stay home. 
This is why, you know, I probably shouldn't have gone out last night. I was bad. But (laughs) because the fear is that, you know, even if you don't come into contact with anybody who ends up getting the virus, you could still carry the germs with you. You could still pick up a little bit of it and bring it somewhere else where someone else could pick it up and take it to someone and spread the virus that way. So another important part about this is that because for already healthy young individuals, the symptoms are not they're not severe. And so you might feel like you're okay. And there's also a period of I've heard up to 24 days where you are asymptomatic, where you have the coronavirus, but you're not exhibiting any signs. And so that's why, yeah, the only this this social distancing and isolation is the only way to guarantee that you're not spreading the coronavirus because it's entirely likely that you wouldn't even know that you're carrying it yeah and you know uh some people and when we talk about go ahead Sorry, go ahead. No, oh, yeah. you go when ahead. we talk about the yeah, sure. Uh, so when we talk about the severity of the coronavirus, like I said, if you're listening to this, there's a good chance that you probably shouldn't be afraid of coronavirus for yourself. Like I said, for most of the population, it's a sickness, a viral infection. You'll have a dry cough and it'll clear up and you'll be fine. But this is not true for older individuals and immunocompromised people. And here we find that the death rate, and another thing is that it's extraordinarily difficult to get good, reliable statistics about the coronavirus because our government's not doing enough testing, possibly as a coordinated effort to make it seem like there are fewer cases than there are. But the best data that I've seen says that the death rate for the coronavirus is 3.4%. And while you might kind of say, ah, that's not so bad, remember that the flu, the common flu, the death rate is 0.1%. So when people say, oh, you know, more people die from the flu, more people die from this, that, that's not as important as the death rates. And it looks like the coronavirus is over 30 times as deadly as the flu. And we still get flu shots every year. So it is not the type of thing where you are likely to die from it, but someone more vulnerable than you faces a still small but highly elevated risk of fatality. Yeah. I mean, if you had a... If they had some sort of food item where you had a 3.5% chance of dying from eating it... That'd be yeah. off the shelves right away. Or even just getting mildly sick from it, that would not be deemed all right. Um, sometimes we hear percentages of things like that, like however many people die in car accidents or this external shock comes and does this bad thing. And they're like, oh, it's not that bad. But then the things you compare it, you know, There are so many things in our lives where if they had similar rates of affecting people that it it would just be completely unacceptable. Yeah. So 
don't listen to anything that says, you know, everyone's just afraid. We've had only a small number of confirmed deaths. Well, there's been a small number of confirmed cases, and these things matter on a percentage level. The, the raw numbers mean very little. Yeah, I mean, uh, all most diseases of the past that we now remember as, you know, pandemics, there was... Um, there was the great flu that happened right at the end of world war one. That was quite devastating. And then there was the, you know, the black plague that came along, even those, I mean, they didn't all kill everybody. (laughs) They, (laughs) they weren't 100% effective, but they were effective enough that if you got it, there was a scary chance that you could die from it. And then what's even scarier is that I'm sure if you've been on social media these days, you've seen something about the idea of flattening the curve. Now, the curve is this idea that. So when a disease spreads, especially a disease like this, it can spread exponentially. So one, you know, somebody's the first case they can spread that. I mean, just say everybody spreads it to two people. So if you have one case spreads it to two people, those two people spread to four, four people spread it to eight and just on and on and on. Now, not everybody's going to end up getting the virus, but you can spread it at a rate that means that the healthcare system just cannot deal with it whatsoever. So if yeah, it there's spreads, a carrying capacity for a hosp- for our hospital systems to treat people, to take in new patients, there is a very, We're not sure of the solid limit on it, but there is a limit because this isn't one of those things where if it if it's a fatal case, you're fatal from the beginning. Hospital care can help you and get you through the uh, through the virus so that you end up living. But if it becomes the case that there are so many cases that there are more cases than the medical system is able to treat then that means more people are going to die from something that could be prevented if there were fewer people at the time getting that. So the way you can prevent more people getting it at a concentrated time is this social isolation. Some people say, oh, we're just kicking the can down the road. But that's the whole point is making it so that this virus works through society very slowly and does stick around for a while, but it means that the people who do get cases that are life-threatening are able to get the medical attention that they need and can be helped through the virus instead of a whole bunch of people being outside of hospitals dying because there's not enough capacity to help everyone. And here's where uh, I risk sounding like a complete jackass if my understanding of viral infections is wrong. But I believe it's the case that once you've had it, if you you know if it doesn't kill you and you recover, you become immune to it. Yeah. So we don't have to worry about people who get sick and get better getting it again. So that's why there is you know the the maximum number of cases we can have is 
the number of people in the country or the number of people who get it until we find a vaccine. And we face a very real choice about do we want to get those cases all at once and overload our healthcare system or do we want to spread it out so that we can sort of treat people in groups and rotations in a way that we will actually be able to do. I think that sometimes these epidemiological concepts are very abstract and difficult to understand. So I would encourage you guys all to go to the Washington Post, which has a really wonderful infographic that explains how these curves, they're interactive, basically uh, models for how these curves look and how the virus is hypothetically spread. The Washington Post is normally paywalled, but they've made this article free. They've unlocked it to everyone. And uh, maybe I can talk to Joe. We can get this put into show notes because it was a uh, really helpful to me in understanding it. Yeah. And this is, this is serious. Like Evan said before, this affects, this kills people at a much higher rate than the common flu does. And you don't know who's going to be, I mean, as a science or uh, as the medical community kind of knows people who have greater risk factors, but you know, you don't know if somebody in your family would be of high risk to it. Um, so it's, well, I think, you know, we can probably know who in our family is at a high risk for it, but we just don't know who it will get spread to. You know, if I go and I, you know, contract the, the virus, I might not know it. I might spread it to someone and I could be like, well, I'm, I'm not going to go talk to, you know, my grandma. But if you don't know you have it, you spread it to someone they might not know they have it. And then they think they're fine. They go talk to their grandma. That's the problem. Yeah. Um, and this is we're, we're seeing real social consequences of this. Um, sporting events are <laughs> kind of the lifeblood of of a large section of Americans, they have uh, sporting events have persisted through natural disaster and geopolitical turmoil, but there are basically no sports happening. They're all canceled. The NBA, and, and I think we should talk more deeply about the NBA in a second, but the NBA has suspended its season. The uh, NCAA has canceled all sporting events, including March Madness, which is bonkers because of how lucrative that is. Uh, Major League Baseball has been suspended. The NHL is suspended. The NFL is going to have to look long and hard about changes they're going to make to their draft and the potentially the beginning of their season. So, you know, South by Southwest was canceled. Festivals, academic conferences, Evan, I have the one to end them all. Okay. The Catholic Church has suspended masses in certain dioceses. There you like go. in the diocese of Peoria, they have halted all masses. Um, they will only do like baptisms and weddings, but only with the like barest minimum of people needed to perform those. So like a baptism with only the parents and the godparents. Um, yeah, they, that Catholics keep going. And this is kind of spooky that. It's like, nope, we're done. <laughs> Holding off for a bit. Yeah, so um, that's obviously a very grave consequence and shows you the severity 
But the NBA is an interesting case because it's it's been one of the most high profile in which NBA players have contracted the disease. Famously, there was a game played between the Utah, or it wasn't played, there was a game scheduled between the Utah Jazz and Oklahoma City Thunder that was canceled when it was revealed that jazz player Rudy Gobert had tested positive for the coronavirus. And this really sent a shockwave. The NBA immediately suspended that game and then all games. And more testing revealed that another Utah Jazz player, Donovan Mitchell, had contracted the disease. And also one of the Jazz's opponents on the Detroit Pistons, I can't recall his name right now and I'm going to kick myself, but a Detroit Pistons player contracted it too. They had played the, the, the Jazz during the period where Rudy Gobert would have been asymptomatic. So, um, and Rudy Gobert has drawn a lot of criticism because he had made a joke about the coronavirus and sort of obnoxiously touched a bunch of the interview microphones sort of in jest to say, oh, haha, I'm going to infect you all. And then it turned out he really did have the coronavirus and probably infected people that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, and then, yeah, go ahead. No, I don't have anything. So Joe and I are both sort of dealing with different aspects of this fallout for the coronavirus in different ways. Joe professionally and me in terms of my personal life, although we're all dealing with in our personal lives, but I've got, I think, uh, an interesting, unique story. But Joe, why don't you tell tell the people a little bit about how your work is changing on account of the coronavirus and the response to it? Well, I am I am in the transportation industry, and mostly what I do is fulfill distribution for a grocery store, and. Uh, we are hitting volumes of freight that is higher than any holiday. Um, that may, I may be saying a little bit too much, but shit is really hitting the fan. There's a whole lot of, uh, schmarmy takes on Twitter about socialism versus capitalism and everyone trying to dig at each other over economic systems. But I can tell you that, um, you know, no matter what system you have, if there's an extreme demand for products like toilet paper or sanitation supplies or canned foods, there isn't just an unlimited supply and they can't just, un, you know, endlessly ramp up production at any one moment. So it's <laughs> the, the machine is working to the best of its ability but if everybody decides to go buy one thing there's no way it's going to be able to keep up with it no matter how the system works so things are uh things are going crazy yeah so why toilet paper i think that's kind of confusing to a lot of people you know toilet toilet paper is not going to protect you from the coronavirus why why is there such a run on it oh i have no clue I think it's just, you know, if if an apocalyptic scenario, again, this is just my take, but I think if, you know, if there was an apocalyptic scenario where everything closed down, you couldn't leave, toilet paper is something that you would not want to be without. Well, yeah, everybody's treating this like this is like a big natural disaster, which, you know, I guess if you're quarantined, it could 
present conditions that are similar to uh, whole scale, you know, economic or downturn caused by a natural disaster. But, you know, if, uh, you know, humans, we've been around for a while. And um, if, if you've, if you've uh, talked with me in the last few days, you've heard this, but it says the beginning of humanity, we've shat. We, we, you know, we poop. And then in the past, I don't know, 100 years, we invented some way to clean our butts after pooping. And now nobody can imagine doing it any other way. <laughs> like if we're <laughs> if we're all quarantined at our houses, you could just jump in the shower. Like it's not like you're at work and, you know, can't uh, you don't have that option there. There are other ways to clean up after yourselves. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It just uh, seems crazy to me that toilet paper is the one big thing, but I guess people want to wipe their butt in comfort still more worried about how it comes out than what's going in, I guess. <laughs> so, so my, yeah, my personal interfacing has been that as some of you may know, I, for the last year and a half have been planning my wedding and it is scheduled to, uh, take place on April 25th of this year. And if you work it out, the best case scenario is that that is the peak of coronavirus infections. Now, as of right now, the, the wedding schedule to take place in Ohio, and they do have a public ban on gatherings over a hundred people, but weddings are exempted. Our venue has not told us that they will cancel there doesn't appear at this point, again, things are changing very quickly, and by the time you hear this, uh, there may be a completely different scenario on the ground, but it doesn't appear as though there will be anything legally stopping us from having this wedding as planned. Again, this has been in the works for 18 months. There's there's no way that we could have foreseen this, and we've already sunk a lot of money into deposits and what have you. But we're having very real, my, my fiance and I are having very real and difficult conversations about what the next step looks like. And it's really tough to navigate in the wake of such a volatile and quickly changing event. We're having people, family members even, who maybe live out of state or exhibit certain risk factors who are already announcing that they will no longer be attending. And of course we understand and we don't hold it against anybody, but it is, you know, it's, it's really putting this very important thing in jeopardy for us in a way that we never saw coming. And there are stories like this all over. This is one of the things that is absolutely affecting every person you can't escape the ramifications of the coronavirus because if even if you aren't personally afraid of contracting it or you think that the fears are overblown that doesn't make the quarantines the self-isolations and the legal decrees from people like governor dewine and governor pritzker any less real you still have to contend with that and how we move forward as a society is still very much being contested. Yeah. Well, and then also with the quarantining, a successful quarantine 
and doing a whole bunch of stuff for nothing end up with the same result. Um, yeah. You get one of those, uh, oh, fuck, is it a type 1 or a type 2 error? But I can't remember. But um, So that's why some people may not buy into it. I know some people who really don't buy into this, but I buy into it. And, yeah, and I think uh, if we're going to start making some transitions, I mean, the the it seems like the responses to this have been most effective at a state and local level, at least here in the United States, where uh, the federal response has been lacking. Um, which, uh, <laughs> you know, this is, this is the scenario that uh, was feared under a Trump presidency where just, you know, even just a few days ago, it was played off that this whole coronavirus was a hoax to help the Democrats win an election. And here we are. It's real. It's uh, it's affecting people. And we could have done more sooner if we had effectively. But, you know, shoulda, coulda, woulda 2020. But um, <laughs> that Remember, doesn't quite called that doesn't quite cut it at, uh, you know, leading a country. <laughs> Yeah, the, the disease is called COVID-19. It's called 19 because it's the strain from 2019. That's when it originated in China. And there have been confirmed cases in the United States dating as far back to January 21st. So although it's just within the last couple of weeks, we're finding out the full extent of it. This has been brewing for an amount of time and a swifter response was possible. Yeah. And, and it seems like where at a federal level, there is lacking, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, JB Pritzker has, you know, is suspending, uh, all activity at bars and restaurants, many, many school districts where decisions are made at a local level. Many school districts have decided to cancel classes for the foreseeable future. I know in Wisconsin, in the entire state of Wisconsin, they're canceled for three weeks. Um, in a lot of localities, at least through the end of March. So it's, uh, people are starting to take it into their own hands, but then there's also the issue of like testing and getting a vaccine and, you know, in the United States, we don't quite know where we're at because, testing is been sparse. Um, there has not been an out or, uh, uh, an effective rollout of testing supplies for anyone. Um, there was accounts from doctors who said, you know, even if there was someone I was pretty sure had the coronavirus, I, they had no way, no official means, no pipeline to get a test in order to confirm if that was actually the case. Yeah, so when you hear statistics about confirmed cases, again, remember that confirmed is the really operative word there. Because of the lack of testing kits available, and initially the testing kits that were distributed were faulty, so that caused an increased delay, um, and besides our already diminished capacity, but any confirmed cases are inherently underreported due to the lack of testing. Whatever you're hearing 
is the number of cases we have, the real number of cases is higher. That is a guarantee. Yeah. Now it's a debate of how much higher and it's almost useless having that argument because we don't know. It's moot. There's no way to prove it. You know? I could say it's, everybody has coronavirus. Um, but um, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to make a point that you said about the perceived overreaction, because let's say that the coronavirus is, you know, a, a big threat, which it is. But, you know, operating in hypotheticals here, let's say the coronavirus is a big threat and we absolutely need to self-quarantine and self-isolate to avoid something catastrophic happening. We do that and nothing catastrophic happens. Let's also say the coronavirus is an overblown problem. We don't really have to change that much to society and nothing catastrophic is going to happen. We do that. And nothing catastrophic happens. So the universe in which we are right about coronavirus and the universe where we are overreacting about coronavirus end up looking identical. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So, uh, you know, there's been a lot. I mean, gosh, polarization. I, I think that that still is at play here. But there's been a lot on each side about how the other side is handling it wrong. And my takeaway is that as long as we exercise an abundance of caution, don't spread misinformation, don't be a jackass, you really shouldn't try to gloat and score points here. Yeah, this isn't, uh, this just doesn't seem like something where, it just be respectful because it is, it is affecting people. Whether you know them or not, that's another thing, but it is affecting people. Um, Think about, and this is true, think about Tom Hanks. He and Rita Wilson, his wife, are quarantined in Australia right now and both have tested positive for COVID-19. So don't do anything to anyone or don't do anything that is below the dignity of Tom Hanks. (laughs) Man, Tom Hanks, that's a pretty high bar. He does. He's like, you know, what? One of the top 10 most beloved people in the world. Yeah. Name, name 10 people more beloved than Tom Hanks. I don't think you can. Mm, 10 Barack Not who Obamas. are alive. <laughs> that Futurama joke. All right. We've been practicing against five Larry Birds. Who could possibly beat us? And now <laughs> announcing the opponent. Six Larry Birds. <laughs> <laughs> Um, (laughs) that, but with Obama. Yeah. But so getting back to the government response thing underlies a fear that I've kind of been having, or, you know, one thought that I've been having, at least within the context of the American political system is that, so this, what's happening right now is totally what was, I mean, I didn't read the book, but I'm pretty sure this is what was outlined in the fifth risk by Michael Lewis, where, um, the Trump administration, or I mean, I guess any administration could come in and just, instead of enacting laws against the better interests of the people, just refuse to, either a put competent people into positions that help society or b put people in positions that actively work against 
that society, you know, those goals of society, or in the, this case, just fire the pandemic team at the CDC, causing a whole lot of risk <laughs> that we're not going to okay, be prepared so, for something like this. Yeah, so I have read the fifth risk, and you're you're pretty close. That, that you did you did good there, Joe. Um, basically, the the premise of Michael Lewis's most recent book, The Fifth Risk, which is a good book, and I, I think you should check it out. I think it does become very very real right now is that what he's realized and what a lot of people don't realize is that this giant government agency and bureaucracy that we've built a lot of the government's job like a lot a lot of the government's job is managing and protecting against risk risks of severe weather events epidemics uh, market failures the government needs to be able to have experienced people in high positions so that they can respond effectively to disaster and appropriately manage risk leading up to disasters to hopefully minimize their frequency. What Michael Lewis posits is that a true outsider with no knowledge of or interest in the workings of the United States federal government will not have any interest in appropriately doing that important job of managing this risk. The title of the book comes when he asks an Obama-era official what his top five risks are that are probably going unaddressed in the Trump administration, and he lists four risks that he talks about. And then the titular fifth risk, the official says, is... Anything that you don't know, the fifth risk is something that you can't possibly predict. And so you need an experienced team in office to adequately account for the infinite contingencies of human society. And Donald Trump has not staffed agencies with competent people. In many cases, he hasn't staffed them at all, including canceling uh, what's that agency or the, the division you, you said it just uh, a minute the ago. pandemic response team or something yes, along he, those lines. he and John Bolton eliminated that. And so our ability to respond has been severely kneecapped. Yeah. So this gets me into some preponderance because they're, because of this situation, um, you know, getting into about what our last segment will be is that there have been responses from now the two major candidates from the uh, Democratic primary where Joe Biden has had a message of we should respond to this in kind. We need to have a level headed government and do what we can to respond to this. Whereas the Bernie Sanders message has been this is a call to universal programs to help alleviate when situations like these happen and in universal health care so that we can take care of all of the people who are sick um, without having to make special you know circumstances for this. And what I start getting scared about is that, so we did have, we do have the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, and we did make the pandemic response team. And, and we created these governmental institutions to deal with these problems. But it turns out that 
if there is someone who comes into office or a party that comes into office that just doesn't take it seriously, then it just doesn't work at all. Like it can just be completely swept under the rug. You know, we could build, we could have made a whole bunch of hospitals that were, you know, specifically set aside for the possibility of a pandemic, but then another administration could come along and just sell them off to, you know, hospital companies. It, I just get scared that there is a whole lot of talk about, you know, kind of, you know, we've talked about our utopias and we have, we're trying to think at least in the democratic party, what way do we go forward in order to better ensure better lives for people through uh, the, you know, the levers of government. But then what does it mean if we create those levers that if somebody else comes into power and decides not to do anything with them or decide that they're bad, then what do we do about that? (laughs) Yeah, we we tend to talk about policy decisions as very static, that we can do something and then it's done. But Joe is absolutely right. Policy is dynamic and administration turnover can reverse decisions made previously and contradict things that we universally accepted were good ideas. And I guess my kind of take on it is that we we talk about these things in sometimes almost wonkish terms about what the outcomes will be when what the conversations that we really need to be having are about our values. And we've gotten into this sort of morally relativist zone where we don't ask within our education system and our public discourse, we're not asked to think about our subjective values. We care about facts, opinion, and morals and values are almost stigmatized in some sections of polite discourse. But when we think about what kind of future we want, and when we think about how our governmental decisions affect our lives in situations such as this, there are moral questions and moral conversations that are at the absolute heart of all of this that often go unaddressed. I think that if we start to reorient some of these conversations less away from nuts and bolts and facts and figures and more towards creating a discourse that's concerned with how we want our society to reflect our humanity, maybe that's the best defense against the vagaries of political dynasties. I mean, yeah, I can get behind that, but you know, I'm just thinking, so what, you know, uh, 
you know, we got, we did end up getting some fan mail and it turns out most of, well, at least the people who will write to us are very in the Bernie camp. So let's say Medicare for all gets passed and you know, it's expansive, but it helps a lot of people get healthcare that they otherwise wouldn't. It helps people, you know, deal with bankruptcy, but then all of a sudden another, administration comes along appoints a new minister of uh the of medicare or we wouldn't call him a minister but you know that's what it would be then all of a sudden they you know they don't really believe in it so they are tasked with diverting funds undoing departments of research trying to squeeze uh, squeeze people out because they feel like it's too big and bloated and then ends up creating a worse, worse health care scape than where we started off with. I just see... Well, I don't it, think we need to... I mean, it just Go seems ahead. like... Yeah. It, it seems like... Um, so, I, I, I'll, I'll go more directly into this. We got a an email from listener Blake, and you know, the, at, at, towards the end of his letter, he asked us what are the differences between Democrats and Republicans because, in his eyes, you know, it it seems like one party is friendly to the LGBTQ community and the other party is not. It seems to me to be that the difference between the two parties is there's one where the Democrats seem to at least believe in government as an institution. And then the Republicans who don't believe in the government as a valid institution that can affect change in society. So even if Democrats or liberals or progressives, whoever you want to say, use their power to create systems that create a greater good in society when run correctly, when flipped over to the wrong hands to people who do not believe in their missions can actually cause harm because of that. And that just seems like, you know, what's, what's happening with this pandemic. We do have systems. We have, uh, government agencies that are able to ramp up and respond to crises such as for like, like this pandemic, but with someone at the helm who doesn't believe in it and try to downplay it because the fear that it may affect the stock market, I don't, it, it just leaves me wondering what can actually be done to ensure that society has these safety nets and these systems, which can truly with or withstand the test of time, to be there when we need them. Well, that's what I think I was trying to get at in talking about the need for a moralistic and subjective approach. I think we need to not just win the policy battle but win the war of feelings. I think we need to convince people that we are, it's worth it to take care of each other. And I think that we don't even need to talk about this 
in hypotheticals because the hypothetical example that you gave with someone coming in and being tasked with running a healthcare system that they don't believe in isn't that isn't what you described exactly what has happened with Betsy DeVos running the education department yeah. and i think that yes it's bad but you know there's there's no panacea but we we have to tailor our well we have to do a couple of things one we have to tailor our argumentation to speak to what actually moves people and we have to make sure that our democratic institutions are strong enough so that the will of the majority is actually reflected in the world we see the political world that we see yeah i mean it i mean politics is tough i mean if you could just speak your morals i think a good number of people would or you know it's hard to suss out when you know someone in politics is trying to uh you know speak their morals in a good faith action or whether it's in bad faith which you know i guess i'm not even grapple with i'm not even talking about the politicians i'm talking about us as people you know the, the ability for someone to interface with Donald Trump or Joe Biden is sort of limited, but the ability for someone that I know personally to interface with me is much grander. You know, so much of it feels personal. We have to do this because we have to stick it to the other side because they're different from me, they don't agree with me, and they're a threat, with me, threat to me. And that's very difficult to overcome. And I certainly don't want to downplay the very real challenges associated with it. But I do think that the things that I've mentioned are perhaps a starting point, a, a jumping off point to create a more compassionate and direct political arena. I mean, it's a noble project. I mean, but I'm, I'm, you know, I may be doing the opposite. I'm trying to think of like, you know, some sort of policy vision where, you know, you create an independent agency or, you know, how you structure these things because, you know, it's tough when, uh, when people don't believe in the, um, merits of whatever's, you know, I mean, there are definitely people who, uh, believe that, in the short term, it's better to not have a pandemic response team because that's such a low risk of that happening. And then when it does happen, it's like, well, I guess it happened, you know? Okay. So do you think we already have a model for a powerful, independently operating organization that's job is to fix problems that politicians sometimes can't? I mean, probably the best model is the Federal Reserve. That's exactly what I was thinking. So how did we get the Federal Reserve? And, you know, this isn't really necessarily a discussion of the merits of the Federal Reserve specifically, but using it as a template for this type of independent organization. How did we get that? Well, I don't know. I don't have a great history on it. Well, the I think the reason why there have been attempts to create other independent agencies but there has what what has been spe- 
special with the Federal Reserve is that really the Congress could step in at any time and start mandating that they do a whole bunch of stuff or not do a whole bunch of stuff. But there is enough bipartisan buy-in to the reverence to independence of the Fed that they are able to remain independent. And the Federal Reserve, um, from what I've heard with interviews with economists and policymakers there, that they very much understand that they they have a certain limit that they can work within. They're not fully independent because if they kind of go outside of what is believed to be an acceptable bounds, then they very much risk the um, losing their independence as an agency. So what has allowed the Fed to remain independent is one, they you know stay within a certain bounds that is not too outrageous, judged by the people who make the policy, and B, the the legislators have decided that it is a public good for that institution to remain independent and do their work independently. So I'm trying to think. So the Financial Protection Bureau or the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was set up like the Fed. Um, if I if I remember correctly, that it was an agency set up to be outside of the direct control of Congress. And while um, and while they it was set up to be independent, the Congress did not take its charter seriously. And the president didn't take its charter seriously. So he appointed someone who was basically tasked to dismantle it. And that very well could happen with the Fed as well. So it's just difficult. It, it, it requires buy-in. And if there isn't buy-in, then there's almost nothing you can do. Yeah. Yeah. So the the question then becomes, how do we get that buy-in? How do we get partisan actors to buy into an autonomous agency? And that's where I'm looking to the first piece of the puzzle. Well, I mean, we're back to what I was saying earlier. We essentially have one party that believes in the charter of government. You know, they may not agree on how far that charter goes or what arenas that it, you know, should belong in. But when they decide that, you know, there is a government function, they tend to take it seriously. And then another that just doesn't really believe in it. So, I mean, uh, the monetary policy that it's just, you know, somewhat it's too boring for most people to have really strong opinions about it. But there is also a belief that, um, you know, you may have the crush pressures of uh, Wall Street and uh, being, you know, ties to Wall Street that are generally good for Republicans and business leaders that are good for Republicans. 
And then there is the intellectual backing that tends to win over, or at least seems to win over um, Democrats or more liberal people. Um, that may just be my take on it. I'm sure there are people who believe that it's also for the corporations and Wall Street for the Democrats. But And then there was also that thing that came out recently that the Fed released, uh, issued a bunch of short-term loans that are going to be totaling about $1.5 trillion. And then everybody and their mother who should know better was like, well, why aren't we just giving that to the American people? But that's, that's a different conversation. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's tough to build good government. It is, it is very tough. And and especially when somebody doesn't buy into it, like, you know, the Scandinavian countries, all the parties buy into it for the most part. They buy into the enterprise of government. They may disagree about how to go about it, but they believe that when government does something, they should do it effectively. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's uh, where we're at in the United States with that. Yeah, I think that's a lot of good concepts to ruminate on. Listeners, I hope you hope you agree. I hope you haven't just been waiting for us to shut up and or, or tell us why i'm wrong which also seemed to be in the mail but uh we thank <laughs> blake and andrew for sending in emails we appreciate it it's good to hear yes back. both good both very feedback. yeah very well constructed uh opinions again both of them in favor of bernie sanders so uh if you if the joe biden wing out there is listening you let us down, or you let Joe down. You didn't let me down. And not even <laughs> Joe Hicks, but Joe Biden. Um, uh, maybe Joe Hicks. Maybe. <laughs> but um, I'm starting to get the sense that there's probably just not that uh, many Biden supporters, if any, listening to this podcast. Or they're not fervent enough to write in. Yeah, so I'll antagonize them here. Poke the bear, I mean, as they say. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you're in the winning team, you're not uh, not as uh, needing to make your voice heard. So, that is true. Yeah. Hell, I still intend to vote for Sanders. I don't know. I don't know. I'll, if, uh, uh, I'll vote for yeah. Tulsi. All right. I've been saying all along she's not that bad. <laughs> Or or I could uh, really rile some people up and say I'm still going to vote for Warren. But you know, I'm going to really rile, really, really rile some people up. I'm voting for Eric Swalwell, writing him in. Oh, my God. If okay, only people... <laughs> you, you can't rile people up because nobody knows who he is. I know, but I want to use this opportunity to raise the, the profile of Eric Swalwell. He's a representative from California He dropped out very early in the presidential process. He got no support, but I heard him on a debate stage and he sounded good to me. And no offense, Joe, but it is my hope that he kind of takes up the mantle as the young Democrat that Pete Buttigieg has kind of taken the front runner status for. I take Swalwell. I like Derek. Um, But you like Mayor Pete a lot more than I do. Yeah. I mean, I like Mayor Pete, but that... That doesn't mean I don't like Eric Swalwell. Um, Good. We like Eric Swalwell on this podcast. Was, I just think, you know, his his slogan was pass the torch, which I thought was just a good way to say, 
hey, let 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 a new generation of ideas take over. And people called him Aegis, they railroaded it for him, and it killed his campaign. But Mayor Pete just repackaged that in a Harvard dialect, and he was a media darling for a year. So Eric Swalwell got a raw deal. I like him. Yeah, he just, uh, you know, that's politics. Sometimes you get the vote, sometimes you don't. And he did not. This is our takeaway from politics. There's no way to predict it. It's like rolling dice. You go into a back room and there's a craps table. And then that's that's how we pick the president. Hmm. No. But anyway. Um. Yeah. Eric seems cool. Yeah. I listen. He was a guest. I think he was a guest on the weeds and he may have come on the 538 podcast. So, um, yeah, I like him. But what were what were we talking about before we got on the tangent about Eric? Just, oh, yeah, uh, who we're going to vote viewer, for. Viewer mailbag, yeah. Oh, yeah. And voting. I'm going to vote for Marianne Williamson. She endorsed Bernie, so, you know. Well, I'm still going to vote for her. I still believe in the cause, you know. But she doesn't even believe in the cause. <laughs> well, sometimes people need a little pick-me-up. They need to be told they're valuable. Well, I can't deny that. And to everyone listening... You are valuable to me, if no one else. I really do appreciate you listening to this right now. I know there's a lot of content for you to choose between, and I'm not saying this with any hint of insincerity, that it means a lot that you're choosing choosing to listen to me and my good buddy Joe here. Yeah. Um, it gives us something to do, and we appreciate yeah. that uh, you appreciate us. So. We, we record remotely, so there is no need for this to stop, although it might stop anyway for unrelated reasons, at least temporarily. We're not talking about shutting down the whole podcast. Just There might not be one next week, but we'll see. Yeah. Stay tuned for information about that. Yeah. Well, anyway, I think that's been about our fill. I would like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. Always uh, good collaborating with him. Um... And anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been... Adequately informed.